We're in Exodus chapter 24. If you'd like to open your Bible or navigate on your device to Exodus 24, we're looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 18. The topic, 70 of the elders of Israel are invited to ascend Mount Sinai, but only Moses is brought into the cloud of God's glory. The title of our message, Hey You, Stay Out of My Cloud, Don't Hang Around Because 70's a Crowd. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we learn about Israel at Mount Sinai and this extended stay that they had to receive the law and get situated as a nation, uh, we're thankful for the knowledge, Lord, and, and, and we'd like to have some insight also as to how they felt and, and what was going on in their hearts. But more than that, Lord, we are here to see Jesus in this passage. And so I pray that by your Holy Spirit, who is in our hearts and in this place, you would reveal yourself in a really powerful way. Lord, if there are people here this morning who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, they're not born again, we pray that you would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the coming judgment, that they would know your love for them, and that they would confess their sins and be saved. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. My diet is better than yours. I'm referring to a 2016 reality TV series by that name, My Diet is Better Than Yours. How many of you were fans of My Diet is Better Than Yours? No one. That's why it only lasted five episodes, I think. <laughs> the series featured a five contestants, uh, it's featured five contestants who each picked a trainer and a type of diet that they believed was the most suitable for them. Competitors would drop their trainers in the elimination process if the results were not to their satisfaction. So the results from worst to best listed on their website were this. Number five, the wellness smackdown. I guess that's some kind of a diet. That didn't work. And so in episode three, that contestant changed to the strong, safe, sexy, uh, sexy diet plan. Then there was number four, the no diet plan, which most of us are on. But that came in fourth. Uh, number three was the clean mama plan, changed in episode five to the nutrient timing plan. Then number two, the Paleolithic Wild Diet. And the number one diet, according to this show on that first season, the Superfood Swap Diet. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with any of those. I was intrigued about the Clean Mama Plan. Uh, their website says, get lean while you clean. Its creator calls it the Busy Woman's Guide to Sustainable Weight Loss. What it does is turn everyday household chores into exercises. And so... I guess, you know, scrubbing the toilet, uh, you know, dusting, stuff like that. I didn't get into it. Ladies, you might want to try that. I guess it's not for men unless you want to be called the clean mama. Could be the clean papa, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Seems like it's gender sensitive. Now, we'll probably never agree on the best diet for humans, but we do know the best diet for dogs. It's kennel ration. Right? How many of you remember the kennel ration jingle? Raise your hand. No one remembered it first service. I don't know what's going on first service. But anyway, my dog's bigger than your dog. My dog's faster than yours. My dog's shiner because he gets kennel ration. My dog's better than yours in your face. As a little boy, I was concerned that our dog get kennel ration, which he never did. Old Roy or something like that. I don't know. Whatever was cheaper. You know, the 50-pound bag for $3. That's, that's what we used to feed our animals. Come a long way. For a while, Pam and I were feeding raw food to our dog. Do you remember that? 
Anybody do that? That's the latest thing, raw food, because that's what your domesticated dog would get in the wild. <laughs> they do it for cats now too, and I just refuse. Something we do agree on is that the new covenant with Jesus is better than the old covenant with Moses. We're told outright in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. The writer to the Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus Christ is better than everybody and everything. Chapter 2, he says that Jesus Christ is better than angels. Chapter 3, he says that Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter 4, Jesus is better than Joshua. Then Jesus is better than the high priest Aaron and better than all the Old Testament sacrifices. What Israel had was good. What we have is better. They had the shadow. We have the substance. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at chapter 24 of Exodus. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, draw near to me, says Jesus, who bled better for you. And number two, draw near to me, says Jesus, who builds better with you. Let's take a look at blood in verses 1 through 11. I don't think it's eavesdropping if you overhear conversations while you're waiting for the movie to start, right? I mean, if people want to talk loud enough to be heard, that's their problem. While we were waiting for the third installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy to start, The Return of the King, we overheard a guy behind us telling those he was with that he had not seen the previous two movies. I had all I could do to turn around and say, you imbecile, what are you doing here? There's no way that he could have any, and I think he went on to say that he hadn't read the books either. And so I, I felt cheated as a fan, but anyway, there's no way he would understand anything that was going on and enjoy that movie. It was just wrong on so many levels. Sometimes you need previous or additional material to really understand what you're watching or what you're reading. The Bible is like that generally. It's been said, and it's true, that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so you find different ways that the Bible speaks to itself to give you a fuller revelation of what was meant. You've also probably heard the old adage regarding the Old and New Testaments that says, the new is in the old contained, while the old is in the new explained. And that's very true. We'll see a lot of that this morning as we look at Jesus uh, through the lens of Moses. Now, as we've already suggested, the passage we are studying today should be explained by our knowledge of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews allows us to see that while the covenant God made with Israel was good, our covenant is far better. Now, there's disagreement among commentators on the exact order of events in Exodus 24. It seems like verses 1 through 11 describe one ascent of Mount Sinai, while verses 12 through 18 describe a second ascent at a different time. Then regarding the first ascent, it seems that verses 1 and 2 and 9 through 11 occur after verses 3 through 8. That being the case, let's start with verses 3 through 8. And so in verse 3, we read, So Moses came and told the people all the words, the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now, all the words of the Lord and all his judgments summarizes the things we've been reading, starting with God speaking the Ten Commandments to Israel in chapter 20. And so from chapter 20 until right here, that's what we're talking about. What we learn here in chapter 24 is that God wasn't simply giving them laws. He was inviting Israel to enter into a binding agreement with him, a covenant. Having heard God's laws, the people eagerly agreed, promising to obey the Lord. Now, at this point, Israel is typically criticized for being so hasty. 
For sure, we know from their history that the nation would miserably fail to obey the Lord. I would, however, note two things. This wasn't a promise that they would never disobey. It was an agreement to the terms of God's covenant. It was like those disclaimers that pop up all the time when you're online where you must choose accept or do not accept the terms. You really can't not accept the terms if you want to get to the next page, right? And so you typically uh, choose accept. And so God was saying, these are the terms of my covenant. And the Jews weren't saying, oh, we will never uh, deviate from that. They were saying, yeah, we, we'll, we accept that. That's a reasonable covenant, and we want to enter into that. And second... Do we not promise to obey the Lord every day only to fall short over and over again? Of course we do. If you don't think you do, then you're a liar and you're falling short. You need to confess that. And so let's cut them some grace uh, in this situation and not be overly critical. Israel knew this was a binding covenant. And what's more, I'm going to say that they were excited about entering into it. I mean, look at all that God had already done for them. Who wouldn't want to sign on the dotted line and have an agreement with the creator of the universe. And so verse four, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Oral tradition is a great thing, but God's people needed laws written down and they were given to Moses by inspiration. Moses built an altar and then 12 pillars. The altar represented God in the covenant The 12 pillars represented the nation of Israel with its 12 tribes. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. There was no formal priesthood yet, but Israelites were familiar with sacrifices going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The young men were likely firstborn men who represented their families and tribes. And so lots of sacrifice had gone on before the priesthood started in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when God first killed animals to cover Adam and Eve for their sin. And so the uh, Israelites were uh, familiar with that, and now uh, they had these young men in place before the priests. From the beginning in the garden, God established that something had to die in order for sin to be dealt with. The Lord told Adam and Eve, the day you disobey me and eat this fruit, in that day you will surely die. Sin brings death. It brought death on three levels. It brought physical death. They began to die physically. Uh, There's a spiritual death in the sense that their fellowship with God was hindered and broken. And there would have been an eternal death, separation from God forever in conscious torment in hell. And so sin brings death. And the only way to deal with death is to have something else die in your place. And so God established that animals could die in the place of human beings temporarily until he would do what he promised in the garden, and that was come personally as a man and die for the sins of the world. And so blood has always been the basis of salvation. Verse 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. It was a covenant agreed to and ratified by blood, the blood of a substitute who died on their behalf. God would accept the substitute, and they would live as his nation under his laws. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. It wasn't like the contracts we regularly sign. I remember we bought several houses over the years. I remember the first house we bought in Hanford over on Harrison. Um, I was in the escrow office, and you know they, they give you a stack of 3,000 pages of material. 
and then there's another cartload of it outside, and then they keep, you know, and there's those little arrows, sign here, sign here, sign here. That's why I don't really sign my name anymore. I just have a scribble. Did you ever, have you noticed that? Do you guys do that? When I was younger, I used to say G-E-N-E, you know, this really beautiful cursive, you know. And then after a while, it started to get more compact, and now it's just. And so I'm doing that, and uh, the escrow officer, she goes, are you going to read any of these documents? And I said, let me ask you this. If I read one and don't agree with something it says and refuse to sign it, am I going to be able to move into my house this weekend? She said, no, of course not. I go, then why bother? <laughs> then when you do read some of that stuff, you're horrified. I agreed to what? Binding arbitration? Are you kidding? I want to sue somebody. Forget arbitration. <laughs> so anyway, this was something they knew. They had the covenant set out before them. Nobody was in the dark about what they were agreeing to. Moses took the blood, verse 8, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. He probably sprinkled the blood on the 12 pillars that represented the people of Israel, not on the people themselves. He wouldn't have been able to sprinkle all the millions of people that were there anyway. Still, this was a blood ceremony. Now, let's get back to verse 1. Now, he said to Moses, after this ratification, come up to the Lord. The signing, as it were, was preliminary and necessary in order for the Lord to be able to say to them, come up. Now, the superior access we have to Jesus can dull us to the fact that God was inviting Israel into his presence as much as he could prior to the cross. So I want you to think in terms of being an Israelite recently delivered from slavery to Egypt after 400 years that your people had been slaves. Now you're at Mount Sinai camped out and God is ratifying a covenant with you, and you have unprecedented access to God. It's not the kind of access we have, but that hasn't happened yet. This is pretty exciting if you're an Israelite. What was happening in this covenant was tremendous, exhilarating. God makes a way for Israel to approach him and to worship him and to reveal him to Gentiles. The fact that the old covenant is inferior shouldn't be a reason for us to think little of it. We always think we're so advanced, don't we? I mean, right now we've got all these, you know, iPhones and computers and all this stuff. But 10 years ago, you thought you were pretty advanced as well. And 10 years before that. And so those are all inferior. I don't want to return to that. But they were cool at the time. And so Israel was enjoying unprecedented access. Now, he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. On this momentous occasion, representatives of the nation, as well as those who would be priests, accompanied Moses. Sure, it says they worshiped from afar, but it was closer than any living Israelite other than Moses had ever been to God. We want to look at it and say, oh, they, were, they had to worship from afar. Yeah, but closer than anyone ever had before, God drawing them in. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near the Lord. They shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Moses still enjoyed greater access. The gen pop had access only through representation. It was, nevertheless, unprecedented access to the creator of heaven and earth. Now drop down or scroll ahead to verse 9. Then Moses went up. Also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. I thought you couldn't see God and live, and yet all these are described as seeing the God of Israel. 
Commentators jump through a lot of hoops to explain why they didn't really see God or that they only saw his feet, and so that's why they didn't die. Well, according to commentary provided by Stephen in the book of Acts, remember I said the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, Stephen, before he's stoned, is giving a history of Israel, and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says they saw the Son of God in human form as a pledge of his future incarnation. And so they saw God, and the reason they didn't die is in the next verse, verse 11, on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. The nobles describes everyone other than Moses. God led them, uh, let them see him without them dying. It was a limited viewing, a place where he was standing, but they saw him. People will wait in line or wait overnight for days sometimes to get a glimpse of some famous personage uh, in a parade line or something. I mean, think of whenever the Pope goes someplace in his Pope mobile. People are excited about that. And so, uh, and they say, I saw the Pope. Well, you were 300 yards away. I saw him on the internet. See, I had a better view or whatever. But, and so when they say, oh, they didn't really see God. They only saw partially. That's great. They didn't see any of that when they were making bricks in Egypt. I mean, this is exciting. Verse 11, but on the nobles of children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. They ate in the presence of God. Nothing in the Bible shouts fellowship quite like sharing a meal. Jesus goes so far as to compare salvation to his knocking on your door and you inviting him in to what? To sup with him, to have supper. Distance, partial sight. The old covenant was inferior, but if you were part of that nation, you'd know that God was in your midst, loving you, desiring to have fellowship with you. God wasn't trying to keep himself hidden. He wanted to reveal himself to Israel and through Israel. It's just that before the cross, this was as good as it got. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Compare what the apostle John would see after the cross. This is from Revelation. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his hand, his right hand, seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Come up to the Lord, he said to Israel. There's a New Testament version of that invitation. We're repeatedly exhorted, draw near to God. The writer to the Hebrews uses that phrasing several times. Here are three of them, uh, Hebrews 4, 16 in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, in the New American Standard Bible, Hebrews 7, 25, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, seeing he always lives to make intercession for them. And then Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One commentator points out the obvious says, the great aim of this writer is that we get near God, that we have fellowship with him, that we not settle for a Christian life at a distance from God, that God not be a distant thought but a near and present reality. Our drawing near is not anything physical. It isn't the good works we perform. It isn't our spiritual disciplines. It isn't even our devotions. 
We have a tendency to think that I'm near to God when I'm in a time of devotion. And then when I'm not, God is kind of with me, but I'm out doing other things. The whole idea is that we have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ as an invisible decision of the heart wherever we are at any time. This is why we get so annoyed here with some of the modern tendencies in the church to put distance between yourself and God. Uh, one of the more recent ones, uh, I don't know if it's still popular, but it's one that's, uh, that I'm familiar with, are what they call prayer labyrinths. It's essentially a maze that you walk through. Uh, and uh, as you go through the maze, you stop at certain stations, and there are objects there or pictures or something that you are to meditate on. And people go through this, and they come out the other end, and they're just, oh, they're mind-blown. They've had such a great experience with God. Hogwash. Because Jesus on the cross said, it is what? Almost finished. It's just about done. I've taken you as far as I can until you get into the labyrinth. No, he said, it is finished. And then what happened? The thing that separated God from man in the temple, the veil, somebody out in heaven reached down and tore it in half from top to bottom and say, you come right in now. Now, the Jews, I'm sure, repaired it. Because they wanted that distance. They didn't understand who Jesus was. And that's what we do today. We keep putting new veils between ourselves and the Lord. Prayer labyrinths or some other way of prayer or certain things that people want to say that make you feel more spiritual. And you know what? You will feel more spiritual, but that's fake. You can't be any more spiritual than think, hey, right now I am in the presence of Jesus Christ. By an invisible decision of my heart, there's nothing between me and him. His blood ensures my presence. And he is saying always, draw near to me. And what? I will draw near to you. That's the Lord that we serve. Someone once said, God is as distant as the holy of holies in heaven, and yet as near as the door of faith. The Israelites approached the Lord through the blood of bulls and goats. We approach him through the better blood of his son shed for us. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, then Hebrews 4, 16 tells us the result, we come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God desires we each draw near. His son died to make it possible for a believer to always have immediate access to him. Are we unworthy? Of course, but it's not up to me to make myself worthy as if I could do anything in my own strength. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that is powerful enough to allow me into his presence. And so lay hold of the access you have to him by faith. He desires to have supper with you, to fellowship with you. You need to enjoy it. Verses 12 to 18, draw near to me, says Jesus, who builds better with you. Have you ever considered the similarities between Jesus and Moses? For example, Jesus was sent by God to deliver his people. He was pursued as an infant by a murderous king. He was spared in Egypt. Jesus came out of Egypt, entered a wilderness for 40 days of testing, and then went up on a mountain to deliver a new law. Jesus was known to miraculously feed large crowds of people in desolate wilderness-like places and was spotted by his disciples on a mountain with his face shining like the sun. All of those have parallels in the life of Moses. And that's why we can say that Moses is a type of Jesus. We see Moses in the next set of verses, but we're looking ahead to the fulfillment 
of Jesus Christ. And so verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. This is another ascent up Mount Sinai after some time had passed. We don't know how long. And so Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Joshua in this chapter makes for a great devotional. I encourage you to think about his situation uh, as a meditation. He got to go partway up with Moses, but not far enough to be in God's presence. Nevertheless, he had to wait 40 days in a kind of no man's land. And so I'm sure there's something there to minister to those of us who have felt like we're not quite where we need to be, and we're wondering exactly why we're sort of in an in-between halfway state. Think about it, pray about it, wait on the Lord. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And they were to wait at the foot of Mount Sinai at base camp. Moses seemed to know he'd be gone a while because he made plans to have his duties as judge covered by Aaron and Hur. Turned out not to be such a great choice. Uh, We'll get to that, but um, even great leaders make, uh, well, I don't want to say it was a mistake, but it didn't turn out well. Verse 15, then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses would wait for six days in the cloud cover before being brought into the presence of God. We don't know why he must wait or how he occupied himself. It's likely Joshua was with him during this time. And so it could be that the wait was more for Joshua than it was for Moses. Uh, We don't know exactly what God was doing. We just need to trust him. And so whatever you're going through, it may not be for you. It may be for others watching you or others that you're uh, in contact with. The things that God does in and through your life impacts others. You never know the impact, but it doesn't diminish God's work. Verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Fires are devastating. Our friend Dennis Agajanian posted that his home was spared in the Alpine fire that started Friday. He lives in that area, and uh, fire went through there and destroyed a bunch of buildings. I keep track of Southern California fires, having lived there for so many years, and uh, having had to evacuate many times over the years uh, during fire season. And so, uh, but this is a fire on top of Mount Sinai that didn't consume anything. It just burned as the glory of God. It was a visual to the Israelites down below that God was present in a powerful way. And so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We pointed out the similarities between Moses and Jesus. I came across this list of ways Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was sent to deliver the nation of Israel out of physical slavery. Jesus was sent to deliver people from all nations out of spiritual slavery. Moses spoke the words he received from God. Jesus came as the word of God and declared, I say to you, and gave God's word. Moses came as a recipient of the law. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Moses' face shone with the reflection of heavenly glory he saw. Jesus shone like the sun with his own divine glory. Moses mediated temporarily between God and man by the law. Jesus mediates eternally between God and man by the shedding of his own blood. Once more, turning to Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. 
And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm till the end. So Moses was a great servant. God used him mightily to build a nation under God based upon the covenant ratified by the blood of animals substituted. Jesus is the son. He is building a house. We call it the church. It's based on the new covenant ratified by his blood as our once-for-all sacrifice and substitute. Jesus is building better than Moses ever could, and he's building with you. The apostle Peter said, you are living stones being built up a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the Lord is a better builder, and you're the building material that he's using. You're being built together into his house. There has never been anything like what we call the church. Believers are each part of a living, building project. The Holy Spirit inhabits you individually if you're a Christian. He comes to live in you the moment you're saved. But the Bible also says that we corporately, the local church, are the inhabitation of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just wherever a, a bunch of Christians meet, but when members of his body in a local church meet together, he is present there in a powerful way. We are meant to fit together in a way that promotes Jesus and the gospel. In the recent Justice League feature film, the bad guy came to earth to retrieve what were called mother boxes. And I really think they could have come up with a better name, but that's another story. So they, there were these three mother boxes, and Wonder Woman says of them, they don't contain power, they are power. And they're okay as long as they're far away from each other, but when they get near each other, they, they join together, and they exude a tremendous power. Maybe we can think of believers a little like that. We're living stones empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Built together when we're united in a fellowship, then we are powerful on earth as the means through which the gospel is announced. And so, you've heard all these things before. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. Christians are meant to be in fellowship with one another. They're meant to be members of a local congregation. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian but Christians go to a church. And of course, this is falling off. You know, many people don't feel like this is necessary anymore. Uh, but then you become a mother box. You're hiding somewhere, and, and you contain power, but you, you aren't power. It's when the church gets together as the church and is functioning, and God is building, and he says, I brought you, and I brought you, and I'm placing you here, and you here. Here's your gifting. Here's your understanding, and when the church is, is working like that, whether we're meeting together or we're out in the community doing what we do, then there's a power, the power of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And so our closing assignment is an assessment. It says we're a building to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, and so our assignment is to assess ourselves and ask, am I offering up spiritual sacrifices. And when I say by ask ourselves, I mean we should ask the Lord to search our hearts and with his aid review our use of time and our talents and of our treasures. Normally, Bible teachers give you a list of things that you should be doing. I don't know what you should be doing. I barely know what I should be doing. 
I think I've got some of it down after all these years, but, not, but there's a lot that I'm still learning, I, and I mean that. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse set me free a few months ago when he said, I am not the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And so whenever people say, now here's the five things you should do right now, I don't know. Maybe there's six for you, maybe there's four, maybe there's others that aren't on that list. And so the Holy Spirit can show you. I believe that he will. He can inspire you. And so the idea is that I'm a living stone. I'm being built into the spiritual building. And God doesn't mean just the general church that's existed for thousands of years. He's talking about my participation in a local fellowship of believers. And so what sacrifices am I bringing to him of my time and my talent and my treasures? So, Lord, why don't you show me the things I'm doing and the things that you would like to be doing? And I have to trust that the Lord is going to do that in a better way than I could. I'll close with this. When we met at the YMCA, some of you remember they had a wall that had fake bricks that had the names of the donors. Do you remember that? You'd walk in and to the right. It was kind of a nice mural. It had people's names, and they were the builders of the YMCA uh, by their donations and, and that kind of thing. Well, in a spiritual sense, your name, you're a brick. You're a living stone, and you should see how you fit in with all the other living stones. And on the other hand, somebody should say, hey, what about so-and-so? And say, oh, yeah, that person's doing this and this, and they have this ministry, and they have this gifting and this ability and this talent. And, and, and you know, if, if your name comes up, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but if your name comes up and people say, who, where, what? I've never heard of that person. Now, it could be that that's okay. You're behind the scenes. Nobody knows who you are. You've got secret gifts. Or it could be that you're not really united with the other bricks the way that Jesus wants you to be. But whatever the situation is, let the Holy Spirit reveal that to you as we spend time now. We are part of the ongoing building of the greatest building project in the history of the world. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. It's not to be belittled or maligned. It is His work, and it is a great work. It is to contain and be filled with His Holy Spirit to reach a world that desperately needs salvation.